we are excited about today. Because today, for me, this, uh, we kind of embark on this study of the book of Hebrews. Um, it's really, for me, kind of a, I wouldn't say the end, but it is kind of the pinnacle of a very long journey. So I can remember back, uh, you know how sometimes back in your youth you had those very specific memories, right? And for me, that was the case. So I was in, I was in middle school. I think it was eighth grade. It might have been seventh. And I had a friend who went to uh, a different church, uh, a church that theologically believed you could lose your salvation, and one of so as we were, and, and of course I was raised in a, in a tradition where we believe you could not lose your salvation, that when you were saved, you were saved, right? And so as we would talk and we would pass scriptures back and forth, one of the scriptures that she gave to me was Hebrews chapter 6, right? And so I can remember actually that summer while we were on vacation at my grandmother's house, I very specifically remember I grabbed one of my dad's commentaries. Uh, for those of you, uh, probably you, you've heard the name Arthur Pink. Arthur Pink was a very well-known theologian, wrote a lot of, uh, of uh, commentaries. In fact, his, his volume on Hebrews is about that thick and it's two volumes on the book of Hebrews. And I can remember reading Arthur Pink trying to understand Hebrews 6. What does it mean for those who are once enlightened, who taste the heavenly gift, made partakers of the Holy Spirit, if they will fall away to renew them, it's impossible to renew them again. And, and I got to be honest with you, as much as I didn't agree with my friend who thought you would teach you could lose your salvation, what, what, what Arthur was selling in that just didn't make sense to me. And so the book of Hebrews is so rich, and it is, um, it is so good, so you kind of jump in and you grab some stuff, but there's these, these difficult passages that we typically stay away from. That's why yeah, I've never preached through the book of Hebrews, because there's, there's two prevailing thoughts, and we'll talk about them in a little bit, but to be honest with you, Theologically, biblically, as I have studied both of them, I don't think either one of them are consistent with the text or consistent externally with the rest of the New Testament. So I just have wrestled with it, right? Because, uh, so how do you do that? So probably about seven, eight years ago, uh, I came across maybe a completely uh, kind of out of phase, different way to look at the book of Hebrews. And it was like one of those oh, moments, right? The, the light bulb went on, the birds began to sing. And especially Hebrews 6, it was like for the first time in my life, I thought, now that makes sense. But the thing is now, what does it make sense with the other four difficult passages? And so this last seven years or so has been processing. Is it consistent internally within the whole book of Hebrews? Is it consistent externally with the rest of the New Testament? I was uh, actually, I, we were about ready to roll this out, I think, last fall. If you remember, back then we had this thing called COVID, so I decided not to do it. And so... Today's the day, 
today's the day. But here's the problem. And I was mentioning, I think, to Sean and some of the staff that Honestly, this has been the, one of the hardest messages for me to put together because today I want to give you an introduction, right? An introduction is a 50,000-foot view, right? Looking down, you know, trying to get some of the very basics as context is king. So you've got to understand the context. You need to understand some of the theological issues. And, uh, but I know because I've been in this journey for 50 years that, you know, I can't dive deep and answer everybody's every single question on this, right? So here's the thing. Today is an overview. Try to just let you know where we're coming. Maybe, you know, maybe it might be the oh, moment for you or you might go, what is Steve thinking in this, right? So over the next, I don't know, 12, 16 months, uh, we will dive into every single passage. Hopefully we will answer those questions. If at the end of it, you just disagree with me, right? We're, we're going to be friends. We're just going to agree to disagree. Here's the thing. None of the other camps, is, this is not heretical. This is not, you know, I understand why they, they can view it that way. It's just I don't happen to agree with them, right? But, the, but they're really good believers. So, and now I have 29 minutes to do this. So let's start, though, with, for me, what's really important, because context really is king, and that's one of the problems that you run into in the book of Hebrews. So as you've been with us when we started Jude, or we started Ephesians, or we started the book of 1 Peter, we always jump in with these context pieces, like who's the author, when was it written to, who was he writing to, explain some of the situation. Well, here's the problem. The author of the book of Hebrews is unknown. We just simply don't know who wrote it. Now, there's certain things that we do know about the author. And number one, when he, uh, he has a relationship with the people that he's writing to, he talks about knowing things about them. Uh, we also know that he has a great knowledge of the Old Testament uh, because he quotes per capita more Old Testament passages than anybody else. Uh, he knows Timothy. We get picked that up, right? And he knows some people from Italy. So, so we, he's got that going for him. So a lot of speculation. Well, then, who could that be? Uh, there's, there's a group that think the Apostle Paul actually wrote this, and this would have been maybe more toward the end of his life and ministry. Uh, it, it's obviously Paul had a great working knowledge of the Old Testament. He, he knew Timothy. Uh, he, he knew the people there in, in Italy and all of that type of thing. Uh, the problem, though, with, with Paul is that a lot of the characteristics of Paul's other books just aren't here. I mean, you think about how typically Paul in every one of his books starts in like the first sentence or two and says, Paul, or Paul and Savanus, or, or, or Paul and Timothy, or, you know, and then at the end of a book, he says, you know, I've even signed this with my own hand, Paul, right? Well, there, there's none of that. Secondly, when you look at how Paul basically builds his arguments in a structure size, that's not this book. Others that have been suggested, because 
you know, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but they, what they tell me is that the Greek side of this thing is, is, again, very polished, very good. It's not necessarily how Paul wrote. So some have suggested that Apollos, because he was a very gifted orator. Uh, some have suggested Clement of Rome, right? Uh, some have suggested, you remember Aquila and Priscilla, that maybe it was Priscilla that wrote this. And uh, the truth is we don't know. There is one, I think, kind of interesting one out there. I don't know if he wrote it or not. But Tertullian, who wrote someplace probably about 200 A.D., actually mentions Barnabas as the author of, of the book of Hebrews. And he mentions it not as conjecture, but as though it was just common knowledge. He just kind of mentions it as it goes. We all know that Barnabas, uh, in his epistle to the Hebrews, is kind of how it reads. Uh, what's interesting is when you begin to think about Barnabas, well, one of the things that we know from Acts chapter 4, that he was a Levite. Well, what does that tell us? Well, that means he would have been very knowledgeable of the Old Testament law, of the sacrifices, of, of what went on with the tabernacle, which is a big piece of all that. Uh, there's also an interesting, remember, they called him Barnabas because the name translated means son of encouragement, right? He was an encourager, right? He, he, he was a Gary Fadley, an encourager, right? Just that, that good word to you all the time. You get to Hebrews chapter 13, and the author here actually says, but I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of, actually, it's the same Greek word as encouragement, the same one that was used back in Acts. So some have thought, well, maybe Barnabas. The reality is, and I forget which church father said this, <laughs> only God knows who wrote it, all right? Now, the date we can be a little bit more idea uh, because Clement of Rome, uh, you remember him, right? Uh, Clement of Rome actually quoted quite extensively from the book of Hebrews in about 95 AD. So not only would it have been written, but he, it would have been accepted as scripture because that's how he quoted it. So it had to be written before 95. You also have a few other clues. If you, you get to chapter 10, and he talks about how this church had gone through persecution, makes you kind of start thinking about maybe the Nero period, the, the 60 ADs, especially if it were from people that were, were from Rome and the Italy piece. Uh, there's also an interesting argument, but I think it's a good argument, that the writer of Hebrews is, is arguing that the new covenant has replaced the old right? That the tabernacle, which is what he writes about, which of course then eventually morphed into the temple that Solomon built, but it was just a shadow of things to come, the shadow of which Jesus has now brought into play, right? So it's not about the tabernacle or the temple here, but it's about this spiritual relationship in which Jesus ascended into that, you know, holy of holies in heavenly places, and the argument is made that if the writer was writing post-70 A.D., you all know what happened in 70 A.D., right? Titus, the Roman emperor, completely destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. That if he was writing after that, it becomes a very easy argument 
the old has passed away. It's gone. Jesus is, you know, the fulfillment now, and that's all we need. Well, he doesn't. He, he never makes that argument. So with that, the thought is probably this is prior to 70 AD, and, and most most of the commentators that I've read put it someplace between about 65, 69 AD, someplace in there. Then you move on to the recipients. Again, they're unknown. Uh, as I mentioned before, we know the author knows them. Uh, remember Hebrews 5, he talks about the fact that they are immature spiritually. Uh, he talks about in chapter 10, he knows how that they cared for the people who were in prison. He knows how they were generous. He, chapter 13, that he wants to come and visit with them. So again, contrast that to like uh, James or 1 Peter, to the strangers that are scattered about, to Pontus, Galatia. Who, so it's just kind of this broad group of believers in Asia Minor. No, this seems to be written more specifically to a specific group of believers. Now he mentioned, he mentions again at the end of chapter 13, uh, those from Italy greet you. Now, Think about that. Does that mean he's writing from Italy? Maybe writing from Rome. Could be those from Italy greet you. But it also could be that maybe you remember there was that great uh, dispersion of Jews out of Italy, right? Uh, that's how we actually met Aquila and Priscilla. And it could be that he has got those who lived in Italy who are now here and then maybe he's writing back. So the truth is we just don't know who the, the recipients are. What we do know is that there probably had to be either a high concentration of Jewish believers because of all of the Old Testament references or Gentiles who had known the Lord for some time and had studied the Old Testament scriptures. Because again, this is going to be one of those things that we are just going to see. And it's so important to understand Hebrews. You've got to go back and understand the, the context of that. Let's move on to kind of themes. Uh, there are, if you read the book of Hebrews, I think there are four things that jump out at you. The number one thing is the supremacy of Christ. Uh, we're going to jump into that next week when we start here in chapter 1 because he starts immediately the fact that he is the son of God, that he is the greatest of God's revelation to us, uh, that he is far better than angels, he's far better than Moses, uh, his covenant is far better than the old covenant. Uh, we're going to look in just a few minutes at Hebrews 12. He is the author, finisher of our faith. He's all you need. The second thing, and this is again, uh, it, it's... It's a theme throughout the book, and it's amazing how many times it crops up. Even speaking of Jesus, who, for instance, there in chapter 1, is already seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, all the way through the book of, of, of that who for the joy set before him endured the cross, Jesus' perspective of, of eternal things to the remembrance of us, that we've got a future. We have a future reward. Live for that day. Um, there we go. The third piece, and it's kind of tied to this, since there is a reward, endurance, perseverance. Stay with it. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't give up. And lastly, 
and this is the part that probably kind of gives the rub, is the discipline that comes to God's people. Now, Hebrews chapter 12, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. It also kind of ties into the warning passages that we'll talk about in just a minute. But these are kind of the four major themes of the, of the book of Hebrews. There's lots, as I mentioned, lots of Old Testament references and illustrations so important that we take time and we will to go and, and look at them and, and to understand them in their context and how they would have tied into what he was saying. The thematic statement of the book of Hebrews, I have become convinced, is actually Hebrews 12. So if, you don't, if you're not turned there yet, that's where I'm going to ask you to turn. Hebrews chapter 12. It, it comes kind of late in the book, but if you were to sum up, I think everything that the author is trying to say, it's here. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now, I remind you, this is on the heels of Hebrews 11, right? The great hall of faith. All of these great Old Testament people who had lived by faith, seeing that we've been surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and not lose heart. Really, you, you think about the supremacy of Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. You think of that two worldview. He's already sat down. We need to run our race. Why? Because there's a future piece. The endurance is all there. And now he's going to go into, in Hebrews chapter 12, how that when God calls us as his sons, he disciplines us so that it will help us run well this race. Now, as I mentioned, there are some issues. And the heart of the issues are, are what are known as the warning passages. There are five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Uh, the warnings are probably a little bit bigger than these verses that I've given you, but I, I just thought for a quick reference and you kind of want to get right into the heart of it, those, those are the scriptures and those kind of begin to... Uh, will get you to the point of if you've never wrestled with these things before, those have been the issues. And you say, well, what's the issue with them? Well, the question is raised, the first of all, who is the author addressing? Is he addressing Christians and believers? Are the warnings to us? Are the warnings to unbelievers? And if they're to us, then What's the outcome, right? If we don't heed the warning, what, what is it trying to say? Or if it's to an unbeliever, what is it trying to say? So when you look at, when you look at how these warning passages through the years, and again, hundreds of years have been, I would say there's probably three main thoughts and ideas, two that are very prevalent today. Uh, and... 
when you start looking at variations of a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this and a little bit of that, there's probably eight, nine of them that are floating out there, but, but three main ones that I want to talk about. And the first two are, are probably the most prevalent. And one of the things I, I typically never do because I don't like labels, when you start putting theological labels it's such a broad swath, and it's not always true and consistent. And, and so I try to stay away from that, but I don't know how to do this without just giving you some really broad labels here. So on the one side, uh, coming from the Arminian camp, right? Uh, you're familiar with Arminian theology, which looks at the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, and their focus is really on the free will of man and their, our ability to choose, and God gave us that free will, how they typically interpret these warning passages is that the, the author is writing to believers, and the warning is this, you need to persevere, you need to endure, you need to continue on, and if you don't, if you fall away, if you turn aside, if you turn back, you will then lose your salvation. So that's their perspective. The warning is to us as believers, and if we don't heed and we turn back, then there will be a loss of salvation. On the opposite side of that spectrum is, um, you know, what used to be called the Calvinistic camp is really more known today as the Reformed camp, Reformed theology. And when you read their writers on this, they would say no, that when you get to the warning passages, he's not writing to Christians, he's writing to professed Christians or professed believers. Um, Arthur Pink, that, that's where he, where he is. In fact, I was reading one of their commentators, really well-known pastor uh, who's in this camp, who actually says there are three recipients to the book of, uh, of Hebrews. One is to Christians. The others are to the professed Christians, right? The ones who are really close, who traffic in it, uh, maybe even claim to know Jesus, but really have not come to faith. And that's what these warning passages are for. And the warning is, is because you are so close, right? You, you've tasted the heavenly gift. You go to Hebrews 6 and you have... Um, You've been made a partaker of the Holy Spirit because you've sensed his conviction. But you just have not crossed that line into true faith. Then you face the judgment of God and eternal damnation because you don't know Jesus. Or basically, if you don't know him by faith, you don't know him. So anyway, that, that's the argument there. The third perspective uh, is completely different. The third perspective is that it really has nothing to do with salvation, losing it or not having it. The, the third perspective is, is that he is talking to believers, clearly talking to believers, and what he's saying is this is not about salvation. This is about inheritance. This is about reward. This is about if you throw your faith away, that there's a future day when, when you will lose your reward. Now, you jump into the text, and as I said, what I struggled with was kind of the internal aspects of the book of Hebrews. 
because number one, to me, you read the book of Hebrews, it's clear he's writing to believers. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's not writing to professed believers or, or, or those that are, that are close. Um, let me give you some scripture. Now, again, we can't do a deep dive. We're at 50,000 foot view, right? All right, but just give you a few. Hebrews 3.1, therefore, holy brethren. So who he's writing to? Who he's addressing? Holy brethren, partakers of of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Sure sounds like Christians to me. Hebrews chapter 10, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Sure sounds like a believer in Jesus. And then even in Hebrews 10, and this is one where uh, you just really struggle. I mean, you've got to you really got to make some textual leaps here uh, to, to you know, take this warning pass and say, well, no, they've really not believed. Uh, it says, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant? And they said, well, how can a Christian do that? But look what it says, by which he was sanctified. And has insulted the spirit of grace. So for me, internally, it seems really clear. Now, let's look at it externally. Well, the reality is, is pretty much the entire New Testament and every book, save possibly some of the Gospels, and most notably the book of John, every other book is always written to Christians. To the saints of. Yeah, Paul starts most of his book. It is to those of us who know him. John is actually the only book. Says these things are written that you may know that Jesus is Christ. And, and the son of God. And in believing you'll have life in his name. And I would even argue that's kind of the first 12 chapters of, of John. And then he even kind of shifts there. But when you look at the external side of it. That is... What the New Testament is written to. It's written to believers. Uh, it's also kind of interesting when you, if you understand Reformed theology, and that apart from, from God, one of the big pieces of their theology is that people are in spiritual darkness, that there's not understanding. You know, first, first Corinthians 2, uh, that we're spiritually... Uh, uh, What's the, what's the word that he uses there? We are spiritually uh, kind of dead, right? There's no insight. There's no light. And if that's the case outside of knowing Jesus, then why would he take up Scripture writing to warn people who spiritually are discerned? It, it just, to me, creates a huge problem. But then on the other side of the coin... Uh, the idea of losing salvation, again, if you go back internally into the book of Hebrews, I think is really inconsistent. Uh, I wish I had more time to develop this. So you get to Hebrews chapter 2. He's talking about Jesus came and took our place so that he through the, uh, might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. Right? So part of what Jesus did, he came to give us hope. He came to give us the promise of eternal life. But if you can lose your salvation, you're not free from that bondage. Because you never know. What if you turn away tomorrow? 
right? Or what if you're driving down the road and a car veers into your lane and some, you know, not nice words come into your mind right before you go into eternity? Did you lose your salvation? In fact, that's one of the, the bondages of, of, of people, to me, who hold that theology is always, in fact, my friend back in, you know, eighth grade, that was the thing, just never felt like she could measure up. Was she really saved? Was she really saved? Folk, I believe that we are saved by grace and kept by grace. And the great thing is that it's not on me, that's on Jesus. And there we are delivered from the fear of death. Because it's not dependent upon me. It's dependent upon Jesus. Then you got Hebrews chapter 10. And he puts it like this. He says, by this will... I don't know what's going on with my clicker today. It just, I'm hitting the buttons and it's not moving and then I hold it a little longer and it's going twice. It's my, my bad, my, my thumb is off, right? I love Hebrews 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. We have been sanctified once for all. For verse 14, for by one offering he is perfected for all time. Well, if we have been sanctified for all time, how do you lose that? I don't believe you can. I don't, I don't think the text allows for that. And again, then you look at the broader picture. In fact, you go back to Hebrews 6, and one of the great statements is, you know, God makes a promise, and God cannot lie. And you can't help but think of what Jesus told us. My sheep hear my voice. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never, ever, ever perish. In fact, the very nature of eternal life, if eternal life is something that could be lost, then it's not eternal. It's either eternal or it's not. So what I'm going to suggest to you is this, that the encouragements and the warnings of the book are to believers. And the encouragement for us is to persevere, to push on. Why? Because with that comes great reward. But when we turn away, when we fall back, when we shrink back, when we turn to the left or to the right, there is the loss of reward. In Hebrews chapter 10, this is what he said, therefore don't throw away your confidence. Don't, don't give up. Don't, don't shrink back here, which has great reward. For you have the need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may may receive what is promised. Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Folk, I believe this book is a wonderful, wonderful encouragement to us. The encouragement, number one, is fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's all you need. He's the one who died. He's the one who provides grace that, by which we are saved. Well, by the way, we don't deserve that. It's his grace by which we're kept. And oh, by the way, we, we don't deserve that either. But he is sanctified for all time. Right? And so what we need to do now is we need to run with endurance. Because the Christian 
life is not easy and it's not a sprint. It is a marathon. It begins the moment that we put our faith in Jesus and it does not end until the day that we see Jesus eyeball to eyeball. And there, there, there are going to be difficult moments. In fact, what's really interesting when you think about that idea of living for and going through the tough stuff so that one day there's reward, you also got to understand the context of Hebrews 12 comes off of Hebrews 11. And if you look back up to verse 39, all these people of faith, and he says, and all of these having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. You know why? Because they weren't home yet. The reward was still waiting for them. And his point is, you got to endure. It's hard. You got to lay aside the stuff that you got to live your life on mission. You got to understand that we have been put into this marathon of our life. And I couldn't help but think of Paul as he gets to the end of his life. What does he say? I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I've kept the faith. Doesn't that sound like Hebrews 12? Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Endure. Persevere. Don't turn to the left or to the right. And you say, but Steve, I have, you know, there was that season in my life. Well, that, you know, again, we, we talk about this all the time. You know, none of us can go back and fix yesterday. Jesus already did that, right? He died, paid the penalty for that. Confess that. That's gone. But we have today. We have today. And today, we can live for Jesus. Today, we can set our eyes upon him. I couldn't help but think, what a great word for us here in America right now, you know, with all, and so easy to get our eyes on all the stuff going on in our culture, in our nation, in our world. What a great reminder. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. No matter what comes, you and I had the privilege of living for him, of sharing him. Yeah, it may get tougher. There may be persecution. It's okay. It's a great reward in that. Fix your eyes on Jesus.